David, you done messed me up. I don't even want to preach this sermon. I just want to stand up here and say, come on, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Ooh. After a brief hiatus, since obviously Jesus isn't going to come back, at least right now, we return to our series, Follow Me, a walk through the Gospel of Luke, in the middle of chapter 8, so turn there. We're pondering the question, who then is this man? Jesus' identity, that he's fully God, he's fully man, his authority as such over disaster, demons, disease, and death, and it's a four-part lesson for the disciples then and us now that's learned in the lab of life. The stealing of a storm, the deliverance of a demoniac, the healing of a woman, and the raising of a daughter, and it's to the demoniac we, were, we turn this morning. And so as we start to think about that, how many of you love a good old scary movie? A haunted house, or hayride, or corn maze? Well, now I want you to imagine, since y'all don't like that, you're home alone, you're in the bed, and the house is dark, and you keep hearing a thump, thump. And you finally get up, and you go to the living room, and you turn on the light, and BAM! There's a zombie from The Walking Dead or the clown from It or some homicidal maniac. Some demon from The Conjuring right before you and it starts screaming at the top of its lungs. The next call is not going to be to Ghostbusters. It's going to be to the medical examiner because you just had a heart attack, right? Luke 8.27 finds Jesus stepping out of the boat from which he had just calmed a literal hurricane or waterquake and he's greeted by a man who looks like something out of The Walking Dead, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the latest Stephen King movie, possessed by a legion of demons, buck naked, terrifyingly violent, self-mutilating, his flesh is hanging in ribbons, and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. So WWYD, what would you do? I want to know WDDD. What, would the, what did the disciples do? So y'all going to be asking these deep theological questions when we get to heaven. And I'm going to go get old Bartholomew and I'm going to say, what did y'all do when Jesus stepped out of that boat and that garrison demonite came running up? If you, as Paul Harvey says, didn't know the rest of the story, what WWJD, what do you think Jesus would do? He's fully God, but he's also fully man. But he's just confronted a violent storm in nature and now he's going to stand coolly and confidently before an equally violent storm in human nature. And there are so many diamonds, little nuggets of truth we can take from this story this morning. I pray God truly gives us ears to hear this morning as we look at this story. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word. Luke 8, 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he, Jesus, had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him... He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. 
Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The word of God to the children of God preached in the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. Father, as uncomfortable as it may make many of us to think about the invisible spirit of world around us, Father, I pray that you would truly give us ears to hear and eyes to see the beautiful nuggets of truth that we can take away from this story about Jesus and, Father, our responsibility to bring others to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that it is only by your uh, son's sacrifice that we celebrate this morning and the fact that he is not, not dead, he is raised from the dead and seated at the right hand of the Father that we are able to gather together in the power of that this morning and hear your word proclaimed. And so, Father, I pray you would bless it this morning. We ask it in the wonderful, precious name of Jesus. Amen. So we're going to look at three parts, the healing, the happening, and the heralding. The first is going to be the healing. So look at verse 26, or actually back up to verse 22. So the first thing I want you to notice is the context. Recall I said 8.22, one day he got into a boat, Jesus with his disciples was not some last second harebrained idea of Jesus. Hey, y'all want to take a sunset cruise on the Messiah cruise line. He had a divine appointment on the other side of the lake and this was it. And it was not just with one man or with a country, but an entire group of people. Notice what it says there. Then he sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. Yes, he had a divine appointment with this man, but it also says the country of the Gerasenes, that was an area that was heavily Gentile. So fast forward to Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And so this is an area, Jesus didn't just come to the Jew, he came to the Gentiles as well. And so one uh, commentator, commentator says that this is not just a miracle text, it is a missionary text, which most all of them should be missionary. You know, I've always said, we always talk about, well, we've got a missionary coming to speak. Well, no, we all are missionaries at the heart of it, and we should be missionaries. Jesus was on mission all the time. He's here to deliver a demoniac, yes, but he's also here to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. And so right out the gate, it ought to slap us upside the head with the fact, are we living on mission? We're not just here to use valuable oxygen. We are here to glorify God and to make His Son known to the nations. That starts in your own family. It extends to the neighbor across your street, to where you work, 
and to the whole world. So that's the context. Notice the condition of this man. Luke starts out, it's kind of innocent enough. He says, for a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. But notice what he said before that. He hints at how severe this is. A man from the city who had, does it say demon? Demons, plural. We're going to find out just how many in a second. So note with me three things about this man. First, his condition, he was pitiful. He was naked. He had wore no clothes. He was homeless. He lived not in a house but among the tombs. Now I don't know about you, but I don't like cemeteries. And I certainly ain't going to go live in one. You've got to be a little touch in the head deranged to go live in a cemetery. Amen? And so Luke says that he had been in this condition for a long time. The verbs there had demons, wore no clothes, not lived as imperfect. So it means this, he had had demons and had demons and had demons and he had wore no clothes, wore no clothes, wore no clothes and he lived out in the cemetery and lived out in the cemetery and lived out in the cemetery. It was pitiful. Second, he was powerful. Look at what it says, he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. That means his hands and his feet. But he would break the bonds, that's a Greek word that means to tear asunder, burst. Now, J-Rod and Billy, y'all put handcuffs and shackles on a lot of people. Have you ever seen somebody literally bust them apart? I mean, it's incredible strength to be able to do this. And it's a continuous tense. It means they would handcuff him and they would shackle him and they would handcuff him and they would shackle him and he would just keep busting them apart. Turn to Mark chapter 5. That's, we'll look at Mark's account for a second. As you're turning there, I'll tell you this, that in Matthew's account, in Matthew 8.28, he says the guy was so fierce, nobody could even pass by him. Which we'll come back to in a second. But look at Mark 5.4. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. I mean, he's like the incredible Hulk. And like I said, he's so fierce no one could pass that way. The word Greek means to oppress or annoy. To be so difficult to deal with that they're harsh or even injurious to people. If people even tried to pass his way, he would hurt them physically. It reminded me of when, uh, as a uh, teenager, we lived on Tremont Street in Shelbyville. And we had this great hill, man. I mean, it was a kid's dream on a bike. I mean, you could start off and you could just coast down that hill, and the next thing you know, you'd be a mile down the road. and You wouldn't even have to pedal once. But there was one problem. Near the end of that hill, there was a house that had a Doberman pincher and they did not understand the leash laws. And that Doberman was unleashed all the time. And I would go down that hill, but I'd be praying the whole time. I'm about to have some fun, but I sure hope I can outpedal this Doberman on past him. Because he's going to come out and he's going to try and bite me. That's what this guy was like. You couldn't even go past this area because you're afraid, terrified, he's going to come running out of the woods or running out from behind a tree and beat you up. Third, he was powerless. 
I thought you said he was powerful. Well, he was, but these demons absolutely controlled him. It said it had seized him. That word in the Greek means to obtain by robbery. That's how Satan works. He comes in and wants to rob you, to steal, kill, and destroy. It said it had driven him into the, des into the desert. It had mutilated him. In Mark 5, 5, it says that he was cutting himself. He was crying out. That word cry out is a Greek word, krazo. It's an onomatopoeia. It means to scream like a raven. I can't even do it. And the word they're cutting is a Greek, not just like, you know, somebody says, well, I'm a cutter and, you know, make a few cuts or something like that, or to make a small little, you know, cut here. No, it means to literally cut down into the flesh, almost to the bone, to the point literally his flesh is just hanging in ribbons. And then it spoke for him. I mean, picture this. He's naked, his hair's a hot mess. He's got a cross between your old dreads and a bird's nest for hair. He's caked in dirt. His teeth are green. Chains are hanging off of him from where he's broken. He's stunk to high heaven. He's got ribbons of bloody flesh hanging off his body. He's mean as a rabid junkyard dog. He's screaming and shrieking and he's jerking around all over the place like some epileptic walking dead zombie. Could it be any worse? Dr. Hughes says this, he says, This poor naked man was a mass of bleeding lacerations, scabs, infections, and scar tissue, living in a delirium of pain and masochistic displeasure. He was wild, naked, unkept, and ill, and as a result, all were against him. Little children fled at his approach. In his lucid moments, he surely realized how repulsive, unloved, and unwelcome he was. He was dehumanized, animalized, marginalized, and both frightening and fearful, what incredible misery. You know, I've actually seen this with my own two eyes. When we were in Africa, there was a gentleman in Steve's village that was exactly like this. I guarantee you he was demon-possessed. Y'all think we're crazy when we up here saying people are demon-possessed. Kevin's seen it. I've seen it. This man, literally, they had him shackled and said no one could even get near him because he was so violent. A couple years later, we went back. And you know what? That man is sitting in a pew just as Marty Bowers is this morning. As peaceful as could be. What happened? That demon got drove out of him and God got hold of him and saved him. It's the most unbelievable thing you could imagine. So don't tell me, and that's my first point of application here, is this, the spirit world is real. You can say what you want, brothers and sisters. You can say the Bible is hogwash and all this, but I've seen it with my own two eyes. A study of Christians, born-again Christians. These are people who are like the creme de la creme of Christianity. They ought to know. 86% said the devil's real. And 72% said demon possession is possible. No, that ought to be 100% on both. Let me tell you the level which our country has sunk. Do y'all know Iris Fontana? None of you probably do. August 2016. A city in Alaska opened up the town meeting for anyone of any religious denomination or any religion or whatsoever, they could come in and they could pray during this 
committee meeting. So Iris Fontana gets up there and prays and encourages them to, in the prayer, embrace Luciferan impulse to eat of the tree of knowledge and close the prayer with this, Hail Satan. Now brothers and sisters, we have got to understand that what this country is up against with everything, be it prayer in school, be it abortion, be it this, be it that, it is not Republicans versus Democrats. It is good versus evil. It is God versus Satan. And Lord, help us when we as a country have sunk to the point that in the name of religious freedom, we will allow a Satanist to get up in a town meeting and pray. As I told Vicky this morning, the, if, if that is the case and that is what this country has done, it is not off of the tracks, it's over the cliff. God help us. But there's an era here in which we as Christians can fall. The spirit world is real, but as C.S. Lewis said, there's two equal and opposite eras in which our race can fall about the devil. One is not to believe in their existence. The other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both eras and hell a materialist and a magician with the same delight. So don't be playing with Ouija boards. Don't be messing with the stuff of Satan. Dr. Hughes said, if Satan cannot pull you down with disbelief, he'll just as happily push you overboard with an obsession about it. And what we need to do, we don't need to obsess about it, but we need to wake up, brothers and sisters. Ephesians 6 is clear that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And we need to every single day strap on the armor of God because guess what? My second point is this. Satan is a punk. And he is a thief. And he is the father of lies. He is a murderer. That's Jesus' own words. In John 10.10, He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Just twice this week in my office, I shared that verse with people that are Christians. They're in there and they're miserable in their life. And I told them, I said, do you understand that Satan is dancing a jig right now on your life? Because the Bible is clear, He comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and He has robbed you of every bit of joy. And He's doing a jig. He was definitely doing it on this man. Third is this, Jesus is able. If He can cure this guy, He can cure anybody, amen? And I don't care what you got going on in your life, be it stage 4 cancer, be it your marriage is in shamble, be it your kids have run off of the track, be it your finances are in the basement, be it a relationship that you have just say there's no way this could ever be restored. Jesus is able. Second is the confrontation, or third is the confrontation. Luke tells us they, Jesus and the twelve, sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, they arrive, drop anchor. Jesus steps out on land. Suddenly he's vis-a-vis, face-to-face with a cross between Captain Caveman and the Tasmanian devil. And look, he issues some sort of rebuke. Look at 29. He had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. This word commanded is a military term. He says, come out. And look at the man's reaction. He cried out. Remember that word I gave you before, crazo, which is an onomatopoeia of a raven screaming? This is anacrazo 
The Anna intensifies it. Have you ever got in the car and the person who left out of the car before you had the radio on about death, uh, death level 90 and you crank up the vehicle and all of a sudden it's like, ooh, blast your ears. That's how this guy is screaming out. And so he cries out and then he falls down. That word means to testify beforehand. Well, testify what? Look at what he says. He acknowledges Jesus' identity. Son of the Most High God. That was a title used by Jews and Gentiles to identify the one true living God. But you know what he's not doing? He's not worshiping Jesus. He's not trying to bring Him glory because there was a popular belief at that time that you could control or dominate another person by using their name. So he actually is a pitiful attempt to try and control Jesus. And then he acknowledges Jesus' authority. He says, don't torment me. And so look in verse 30 at Jesus' response. He said, what is your name? Well, why did Jesus ask that? Don't you think Jesus knew His name? So why did He ask it? Because He wants to bring to light to those who don't know how severe the situation is, how severe the situation is. Because look at what the man says. He says what? Legion. Can you imagine how he said that? Legion. You know what you think of when you think of a legion? Well, first it's 6,000 Roman soldiers. But you know what it is? It's soldiers. And as Dr. Bach says, he said it adds to the note of battle. It's one against many. The war is on. I'm saying you are the Son of the Most High God because I'm trying to control you. Who are you? I'm legion. The battle's on. We're going to see who's going to win, big boy. And it ain't going to be the devil. I mean, can you imagine? Y'all remember the story of Gideon in Judges 7? He's got 22,000 warriors. God says, that's too many. Knocks it down to 10,000. He says, that's too many. You know why? Because if you win with 10,000, you're going to give the glory to yourself instead of me. That's a whole sermon in and of itself, ain't it? So he knocks it down to 300 against all these. Well, Jesus ain't even got 300. It's him against 6,000 demons from the pit of hell. And remember, nobody can even touch this guy. Now look, Jesus was God, but he was also man. Can you imagine the courage to stand there and say, Oh, big boy, you want to fight the battle zone? Bring it on. Bring it on. So it's part of application. Even the demons believe. They have faith. They just don't have saving faith. Look at this. Consider this. They believe Jesus is the Son of God. They believe Jesus has the authority to command them, to torment them. They believe in future judgment. They believe in the existence of a place of torment. They believe in prayer. They beg Him to go here. You see, brothers and sisters, here's the point. And many of us in our churches need to understand it. Knowledge ain't the key. Obedience is the key. What is key ain't what's in your head, it's what's in your heart. And you know why I obey Jesus Christ? Because He demands it? No, because of this right here this morning. And because it has affected my heart. 
because He has given me a heart transplant and because I literally would die for Him because He loves me so. It's not what's up here. It's what's in here. And second point of application is this. Jesus is creator and sustainer. And I'm going to tell you, Satan and demons are powerful, but my Jesus is all-powerful. Ephesians 3.20 Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than you ever could even imagine. Next is the casting. So Jesus, He's answered to His name. And then the demons, what they do? They begged Him not to command them to depart into the abyss. That means they begged Him over and over and over. What's the abyss? It's the area of torment for demons. Well, why would they not want to go into that? Anything is better than the abyss. And here's a little point. If demons are that hell-bent on not going to hell, how does that speak to those who today think hell's going to be a party? Now, I, want, I found this quote, and this was a pastor. Listen to this. If heaven is supposedly filled with such petty, self-righteous hypocrites, it doesn't sound all that much like heaven to me, and if so many beautiful, life-given souls are surely bound for hell, it seems like it'll be a great time. God help that pastor. If demons beg Jesus, don't send us to hell, and you think it's going to be a great time? And he closes with this. He said, to quote one of my favorite songwriters, the great Frank Turner, and we're definitely going to hell, but we'll have all the best stories to tell. I just really don't have any words for that, brothers and sisters. I pray anybody that's in his church that God would awaken their heart and soul to get out of there. And so Jesus gives this legion of demons permission to enter the herd of pigs and Matthew says He does it with just a single word. Go. You know how Jesus gets rid of 6,000 demons? Go. So again, the point is this. Jesus has authority over all. And He's now left us with that authority. And if He's given us authority over everything, why do we as Christians live such defeated lives? If He's conquered death, He's conquered sin. He's conquered Satan. And He lives inside of us. Why do we live such defeated lives? And I mentioned this this morning in Sunday school. Where Scripture is silent, you be quiet and let Scripture be silent. Well, how can animals be possessed? I don't know. Why would Jesus allow such a use of animals? I don't know. Maybe you can ask Him one day after you pick yourself up from falling at His feet. Well, what happened to the demons? I don't know. We get in trouble when we try to figure out God for Him and we don't just let God be God. That's right. The calamity. So it gives them permission to enter the herd of pigs and they did just that. Mark tells us it was 2,000 pigs and the whole herd rushes in the lake and drowned. Can you imagine that? Now here at this point in the story is where some people saddle Jesus with sin. They say, well, these were innocent pigs. It is a cuckoo mindset that values animal life over human life. If you've seen on my truck, I've got a little thing there that's got a, a panned, I think it is, and it says, save the human babies. When we live in a country 
that says recycle trees and kill babies, God help us. First off, this end of the swine would give visual testimony to who? The demonite that he had been delivered. And all those demons were gone out of him. That's why he did it, for one. Second is, it would show the neighborhood that this wild maniac was now gone. And that was of greater importance than you losing 2,000 pigs. And can we compare the price of a herd of swine to the value of a man's soul? At the end of the day, Jesus, to saddle him with sin is blasphemy. Amen? Because he knew no sin. And because of that, then His righteousness has been laid upon you. And that's the only way any of us can be right before God. God at the end of the day owns everything and He can get rid of it however He wants to. Alright? So next, the happening. Look at what we're told in verse 34. The herdsmen saw what had happened. They fled and told in the city and in the country. The people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They hightailed it out of there and flapped their lips. These are the guys who probably owned and cared for the pigs. And so folks pour out. They want to see this with their own two eyes. They're probably thinking, man, y'all had too much to drink last night. Or, you know, y'all crazy. Y'all been spending too much time with them pigs. And so cue the transformation. You know most movies or shows you watch, it's the before and then the after, right? Luke gives the after and then the before. Look at the after. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He ain't screaming. He ain't chained. He ain't running around wild. He's clothed. I wonder how long it'd been since he'd had on clothes. He's in his right mind. He's not cutting himself, not trying to hurt folks, not talking in that crazy demonic voice. He's at the feet of Jesus. He had a change of address. He went from death, the tombs, to life. Sitting at the feet of the way, the truth, the life. And it says they were afraid. Well, why? Wouldn't you have been? And so now cue the before. And those who had seen him, verse 36, told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. That word healed there just means to save or rescue. And I put here in my notes just finally, I wonder if you had on a Jesus is my lifeguard shirt. Do you notice something even stranger than this guy who is just sitting calmly at Jesus' feet? The response of the people. So did they rejoice? Was there a revival in the country of the Gerasenes? Look at verse 37. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart for them, for they were seized with great fear. What in the world? Why would they ask Jesus to leave? Because they love pigs more than they value the human soul. And you know what was sinking down to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee? A whole lot of bacon. And they probably all they could think of is 2,000 pigs times such and such pounds times such and such denarii. Jesus, do you realize how many denarii you just cost us? Listen to this, John Oxenham, he had a poem that says about this. Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. Oh, get ye hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. 
His soul, what care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole since we have lost our swine? One of life's supreme dangers is to value stuff more than people. And you know what God has started to show me more as I'm getting older and older and older? At the end of the day, I'm not going to care how many national championships the Memphis Tigers or the UT Vols or the Grizzlies or this and that have. I'm going to wonder how many times I have my children at home to love on them. And how many times I was able to pour myself into you. I'm not going to care how many rings Butch Jones does or doesn't have or who takes his job. I'm not going to care. I'm going to care that I've got 25 people lined up behind me that I can introduce to Jesus because I use my time and talent and treasure to bring them to the Savior. Well, what's going to happen, Jimmy, while y'all are going to Nicaragua? Who's going to win the, uh, this game? Who's going to be number one in the NBA? Nobody's going to care. There is so much junk and garbage that we allow in our life that is so important and it don't mean nothing. That's right. Don't mean nothing. And second, you know what they didn't like? They didn't like having their life disturbed. One author said more people hate Jesus because He disturbs them for any other reason. Mm. What have I said? Why do more people not believe this? Why do they call it hogwash? You know why? Because if you believe it, it's going to disturb you. It's going to disturb you severely. As I told them in Sunday school, and I went out to an ME scene, the second one within a couple of hours, and I'm irritated. So they said, well, how are you doing today, Doc? And I'm like, man, man, man. And the Holy Spirit just slapped me upside the head after that. You're blessed and highly favored. Get over it that you're having a bad day. Get over it that it's been disturbed, but we get disturbed. Think about it. Well, if I come to Jesus, I've got to give up this habit. Well, if I give up, if I come to Jesus, I gotta give up drinking, don't I? Well, you gotta get up uh, being a drunk. And if your tendency is to be a drunk, then yeah, you need to give up drinking altogether. Well, if I come to Jesus, does that mean I can't look at porn occasionally? Yes. Well, then I don't want Jesus. It's gonna be a sad day when you're standing at Judgment Day, and you'd rather have your pornography than you'd have Jesus. Well, you can't be a Christian and treat folks like that if you're their boss. Well, then I just won't be a Christian. Or I'll fake it. I'll go to church and everybody will think I'm a Christian. I'll throw a 20 in the plate and I'll go home. But ultimately, you know why they wanted him out of there? That's, this is why, because they're cockroaches. And you know what cockroaches is like? Cockroaches like the dark. And ultimately, you know why we don't like Jesus? Because He's the light. Men would rather love darkness than they would light. That is scriptural. That's John 3. 
I mean, think about it for a second. They should have thanked Jesus. They should have had a massive party because guess what? He got rid of this guy. He was a menace. People couldn't even pass that way. They should have been saying, thank you, Jesus. And if they really would have thought about it, because actually Mark and Matthew tell us it was two men. I didn't really want to get into that to blow your mind and get into all that. But the reason Luke says it's only one because only one of them is speaking. He's kind of the spokesman. But is not two men's souls worth more than 2,000 pigs? They should have been saying, thank you that you saved these two men. And so the saddest eight words in the whole story is this. He got into the boat and returned. They wanted Jesus to leave. He left. He answered their prayer. One person said this, Jesus doesn't stay where He ain't wanted. You know the saddest thing? We're in the days in which this is happening, brothers and sisters. What does it say in 2 Timothy 3? In the last days, people be lovers of what? Themselves, not lovers of God. Do you know in Revelation 16, 8, it says that men will be scorched with heat so severely that they won't turn and repent to God. They'll curse Him to His face. They'll have sores all over their body and you know what they'll do? They will not repent. And they'll say, we don't want you around here, Jesus. And you know what the Scriptures teach? That He will oblige because in 2 Timothy 2, 11, 12, it says that God will send them a strong delusion so that even if they wanted to believe, they cannot. I think... And I may be crazy, and you can call me crazy and throw me out of here on my ears if you want to, but I think we are very close, if not already to that point in our country, that God has sent a strong delusion on this country that people can't even believe even if they wanted to. You know why? Because year after year after year after decades we've said, Jesus, we don't want you. And you know what He says? Fine. I'll oblige. And I'll leave. Finally, the herald. And, and I want you to imagine this scene. I mean, it's been pretty fiery up to this point, but I want you to imagine this. I mean, this is something you could actually put on a silver screen in Hollywood. Jesus goes to leave, and the man comes up one last request. Let me go with you. As I was preparing this message, I thought of the song by Chris Tomlin, I will follow. And he begged him. This one guy had more spiritual discernment than a whole country. <clears throat> and so he says, where you go, I'll go. The Chris Tomlin song, where you stay, I'll stay. When you move, I'll move. I will follow you. And I want to ask you, is that your desire? Is your desire to be with Jesus 24-7, 365? Or is your desire, well, I'll just get up and do five minutes of devotion because I have to. No, it's five minutes, 15 minutes, 10 minutes, hour, whatever. You get to commune with the very God of this universe who created you. And look, Jesus denies His request. You think maybe He was crushed in that moment? Well, Jesus, my prayer is I want to go with you. And some people would say, well, He didn't answer His prayer. But you see, all prayer of a true saint is answered one of four ways. And three of them are yes, yes, and now that way. The second is yes, but at a different time. Third is yes, but in a different way. And four, when he does say no, it's I got something better. 
Jesus had bigger, greater plans for this man. So he sends him away with an amazing assignment. He tells him, go to your home. You know where it is imperative for Buffy Cook to share and display the gospel first and foremost? It ain't in Africa. It's at 134 Beck Lane. And he says, declare how much God has done for you. That word there, to publish, means to herald. I think if y'all remember the stories in the newspaper, extra, extra, read all about it. I can imagine him running around doing that. And so does that describe you? I love what Dr. Barclay says. He said it would be so much easier to live and speak for Christ among people who don't know us. But it is our duty where Christ has set us there to witness for Him. And if it should happen that we are the only Christian in the shop, the office, the school, the factory, the circle in which we live or work, that is not a matter for lamentation. It is a challenge in which God says, go and tell the people you meet every day what I have done for you. How many times have I said membership has its privileges, but it also has its responsibilities? And brothers and sisters, as Christians, we have great, amazing privileges, but we also have a responsibility to go flap our gums everywhere about Jesus. And so the eight saddest verses or words were in verse 37, but the 16 most amazing to me is verse 39, and he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Well, how is that the most amazing? Because he actually did what Jesus told him to do. You know, kids say the darnest thing. There was a kid one time, he said, the greatest miracle in the Bible is when Joshua told his son to stand still and he obeyed him. Well, obviously he didn't understand the story, but it was a great point. When Joshua said, son, stand here, and he stood there. So when Jesus says, go and tell, and we actually do it, we shouldn't be surprised, but we are. You know why? Because we don't really hear. We don't let it then sink down, like I said, out of our eighth cranial nerve, down our spinal cord, and into our lips, and our arms, and our hands, and our feet. And look at what he does. He goes and he tells it. Notice how great was his obedience throughout the whole city. Mark says throughout the whole Decapolis, which was ten cities. I wonder how many folks uh, mocked him, ridiculed him. Let me ask you, have you ever led somebody to Christ? If you have in that single moment, didn't everything that it took to lead that soul to Christ evaporate just like that? And the Bible says in the moment that they came and received Christ that a party broke out in heaven. Hallelujah. Because there is joy before God by the angels over one sinner who repents. What a beautiful picture of obedience. There's a story told of an ophthalmologist and he was fresh from medical school. He opened up a practice. He had no friends, no money, and no customers. And he got discouraged. One day this blind man came in and he said, why don't you have your eyesight restored? Come to my office in the morning. So he goes and he uh, comes back to the doctor's office. That's operation. It was successful. He's able to see. And the guy said, look, I ain't got a penny in the world. I can't pay you. And he said, oh, you're going to pay me. He said, here's what you're going to do. He said, I want you to go and tell everybody you were blind and who it was that made you see. That's what this demoniac did. 
What did you look like before? Man, you're not going to believe it. Hey, this guy right here, he's got the greatest news in the world to tell you. You ain't going to believe what he looked like before and what he looks like now. Yeah, let me tell you about my Jesus that healed me. That I wish, I pray that God would give us 30 people at Crossway that had that kind of heart. And I pray God would make me one of them. Well, sometimes I ain't. Too many times I ain't. In closing, I may have shared y'all this story before, but one time when I was doing the children's moment like Dickie does up here, y'all need to understand this ain't the easiest thing in the world to do. Kids say the darndest things, right? I was doing this one on junk food Christians, and I was trying to get the point across that, you know, don't be a junk food Christian. And so I had me a little paper bag, and I had all this junk in it. Chips and Little Debbies and, you know, Twinkies and candy bars and this and that. And I said, so tell me what's wrong with my lunch. And Riley Lenadar, if y'all know her, she is country as corn. And she goes as loud as she could, You ain't got no milk! <laughs> I said, well, you're right, but... You see, a lot of Christians, that's how they are. They're living on junk food. And they ain't got no milk, and they certainly ain't got no meat. You know a real-life horror story? The millions upon millions of Christians living as junk food Christians. So I'm going to give you three things you can pack in your lunchbox to take with you this week quickly. One is Jesus is omnipotent. I don't care what is going on in your life. Jesus can handle it. Number two, Jesus is disturbing. He wants to wreck your life. He wants to come in your house and He wants to rearrange all the furniture and put it where He wants it. For His glory. Because He's the one that saved you. As Dr. Rogers used to say, God's throne ain't a duplex. You don't get to sit on the throne and He sit on the throne. He sits on it and you're a slave and you do what He tells you to do. Number three, Jesus is worthy. Wear that name. Share that name. Bear that name. Go tell it on the mountain. The time's short. Listen how the Bible closes. He who testifies to these things says, Surely, I'm coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we just thank You so much for this service You have given us. Just, Father, the power that has been here, Father, only by Your Holy Spirit. The power in the music, Father, the power in the giving, Father, the power in Your Word, not in me, but in Your Word. Father, we thank You so much for it. Help us to take from this message today something that we can apply to our lives that we can truly live victoriously for you and to your glory we ask this and that you would honor and father bless this time of invitation and then our taking of the lord's supper in the wonderful precious name of jesus we ask that amen so satan had undone or jesus had undone satan's work he restored this man who just probably thought he was never going to be able to be anything other than what he was, deeply descended into sin and scars that were so profound he never thought he would be made whole. But you know the seven most beautiful words in Scripture, I have that written in my index. 
in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, it gives this long list of people who won't inherit the kingdom of God. And it says this, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. You know, that moment in the summer of 2001, I don't recall a single word Brother Charles spoke that morning, do you? I couldn't tell you a lick of what he said in that sermon. But I know this. I know Jesus Christ said, Come home, son. And my life was one in which I was so deeply descended into sin, I didn't think it was possible I could even come out of it. I had caused myself and other people so many scars, I didn't think there was any way God could fix that and heal that. And I thought of this hymn. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry, from the waters lifted me, now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. I don't care where you are in life. I don't know what's going on with you. And maybe it's not even a decision for salvation you need to make this morning. But something I have said, you just need to come down here and you just need the love of Jesus to wash over you and help you to know that you are whole. Maybe you have never ever accepted Christ as your Savior. Let Him reach down and love lift you up. And brothers and sisters, we ought to go forth this week after the songs that this man prepared for us and this message that God gave us and us partaking of the Lord's Supper. And if every single one of us in here ain't bad Pentecostal this week, then something is wrong because we ought to be jumping for joy because love has lifted me and you and we are seated in the heavenlies. Who cares what goes on in this country? We already got a place reserved to heaven. And as the little man said before, I don't know exactly how we're going to get there. All it says is we talked about it, send a twinkle and a die. I'm just thankful I got a ticket. Amen? Amen? But if your ticket ain't ever been punched and you're still lost in your sins, you're almost this close, almost, is to be eternally lost. Come home to the Savior today as we stand and sing. Stand and sing page 307. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee.